Well, good morning, friends. Good to see you. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here at Evergreen Covenant Church, and I'm going to be bringing the good word this morning. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles or your phones, however you choose to engage with the scripture. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 24 and reading through the first 12 verses of that chapter. So if you would listen along as I read from the scriptures. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. And Holy Spirit, now we open ourselves and our minds and our hearts help us to receive what we need to receive. Help us to listen very carefully. And would you be so kind as to challenge us, to make us uncomfortable, to cause us to continue to grow and become more like a reflection of your compassion and your love in this world. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Well, this morning, Evergreen, we gathered at 6 a.m. out in the parking lot, and we did what I called a liturgy walk. These are, these are your peeps up here on the screen. Walking this morning, we walked up to the lid on Mercer Island, and we spent our time this morning reflecting on the implications of the resurrection. What does it mean to say that Jesus is alive today? What does it mean to be a people who are marked by the resurrection, and we proclaimed resurrection hope over the cities of Bellevue, over Mercer Island, over Seattle, and throughout this region that we get to live, work, and play. Our hearts want to be a reflection of what God's doing in the world right now, and we want to participate in it. So my encouragement this morning was, let's get out of the building and get into the community where people actually are and be with them and pray over these places that we call home. So we were able to do that this morning. It was a blessing, and here we are, 10 o'clock in this building. And I want to do three things this morning, and I want to talk through how I believe the resurrection of Jesus actually challenges our thinking minds, and then how the resurrection actually transforms the human heart, gets down to the motivations of why we follow Jesus. And then I want to conclude our time by talking about how I believe the resurrection actually frees us to love the world in which we live. So let's talk about how the resurrection challenges our thinking minds. Prior to the death of Jesus, 
there had been other messianic movements that had risen in Israel's history. And within all of these different messianic movements, the leader was executed. However, after the leader was executed, the movement died. It dwindled and people went home. Another failed movement. And within this particular messianic movement, the leader didn't stay dead. Even though the leader died, the leader came back to life. That was the proclamation that was being declared throughout history. And in Mark's gospel and in Luke's gospel, both Mark and Luke actually mention the names of women. Now, this is quite scandalous, and we're going to talk about this this morning. The fact that they both named women by their names as being eyewitnesses to the resurrection says something about the nature of the resurrection. The men that they were told to go and find were hiding and huddled. The women were there as eyewitnesses and the men were hiding in fear. One author states it this way. He says, there's another way. This is another way that the gospel writers are letting us know that they are recording a historical account and not writing a legend. In other words, what they're doing is they are source citations. These are what we would call footnotes. So when historians use source citations, they're letting you know this is a historical document, this is not a legend or just a story. Another thing that swirled around during this time is what was called oral traditions. So stories were passed on through oral traditions, and people's words held a great deal of credibility. So the fact that these women were recorded by name, if you wanted to clarify, did this actually occur, you would go to them and speak to them directly. Now, there was a Greek philosopher who came into the picture about 80 years after Jesus had risen from the dead, and listen to what he said, because this is going to give you a glimpse into the cultural biases and how scandalous this story actually was in their context. He said this, Christianity can't be true because the written accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women, and we all know that women are hysterical. <laughs> right? Aren't you glad that things haven't changed? People in the ancient world held on to these beliefs and these convictions. They agreed, yeah, women do tend to be hysterical, so you can't really take their word as final truth. Not accurate, and yet, the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Mark, both authors felt that it was important for us to know that it was actually women who were the first eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus, and then actually named these women as credible eyewitnesses, and this is within this temperature of what's going on with the cultural biases that they were steeped in. These women were given the task, the joy, of going and declaring to the men, hey, we went looking for the body of Jesus, but Jesus walked out of the grave, and they were instructed to give the greatest message that history has ever heard. If this does not give us any sense that women belong in the pulpit, I don't know what else I can tell you. I am fully in agreement that women are equal to men. Can I get a, an amen about that? Amen. Yes, I'm, hope, I'm hoping you're with me. And Jesus walked out of the grave and declared to these women, go and tell my disciples that I am alive. 
This is actually mind-boggling for these gospel writers to name women as the first people to declare the goodness of God. Because if you're trying to spark a movement within this culture, you would typically get well-respected men to make the proclamation because that would hold a great more deal of weight and significance. And yet these gospel writers flip the script on all of us and declare that actually women were the first to declare that history has been completely altered. I love how the gospel writers are playing with those cultural norms and actually flipping them upside down on us. Now note in the text, it also mentions that these women are bringing expensive spices to attend to the body of Jesus. No one expected this. Don't you think that if Mark and Luke were making this story up, at the very least, Mark would have included himself in one of the people that actually went looking for the risen Jesus. Do you see what's going on here? The fact that this author, both authors, mention women. Is this how you fuel a messianic movement? Is this how you get some momentum behind the movement? Because you can't entrust the greatest declaration to women because we all know women do tend to be hysterical. And yet, this news spread throughout the Roman Empire and completely changed the course of history. My thing is, is if this was a legend, if this was just something that happened in history, that this was just a story, why were so many men and women giving up everything that they had for the sake of Jesus in the world? Why were they giving up their very lives if this was just a story? Why were these believers, these early followers of Jesus, taking care not only of their own sick, but they took care of the Greeks and the Romans when they were sick, when their own people wouldn't take care of them? What was it that compelled them to actually go after and seek to eradicate the suffering in the world? Was this just an inspiration or did something actually change the course of history? I think we need to pay careful attention to the implications of the resurrection because the resurrection of Jesus Christ challenges our thinking mind. But it also challenges the heart. And when the heart and the head start to sing up, sync up, that's when real change starts to happen at the human level. In Mark's gospel, there's this strange line where the women come to Jesus and the response is, go tell the disciples and Peter. Now, how would you like to be that tagline? Go tell the disciples that I've risen from the dead and Peter. Now, weeks ago, I made this statement that said, how you see God is how you see just about everything. And I would even take that a little bit further. Maybe how you hear God is how you hear just about everything. So when you hear a line like this, go tell the disciples and Peter, how do you hear that? What lens do you filter that through? Go tell the disciples and Peter. Maybe for some of us, it sounds like this. If they own up to their cowardice behavior and the fact that they ran away when I needed them the most, I will consider letting them back on the team if they're really, really, really sorry. And if they own their slip up. Doesn't that sound familiar for a lot of us? Doesn't that seem to align more with the messages that we receive as people? Because it's all based on what we do, isn't it? It's all about transaction. We are a transactional 
people. If you're really sorry and ask for forgiveness enough times, then maybe I'll consider letting you off the hook and maybe we can talk about you being part of this community again. But I continued to be absolutely mind-boggling, struck from the heart that Jesus always seems to start with love and forgiveness and not shame and condemnation. He starts with love. He starts with believing in you as a person. Jesus is actually forgiving them even before they can offer any sort of a script of repentance that we are so keenly aware of or we try to write. He doesn't even ask for their scripts of repentance. He just comes looking for them and going after their hearts. And then you read in the Gospel of Matthew that when Jesus appeared before his disciples, it says this right in the text. Some believed and some doubted. Is that how you start a messianic movement? Some believed and some doubted. And he's standing right there. Now, doesn't that sound like our story? If we're honest? So, wait, some believed, some doubted. That sounds like my story. That sounds like things that I've experienced as a human being. Some believed, some doubted. And let's not forget about that Peter part, the and Peter how do you recover from this? Peter, as you can remember, was the one who denied Christ in Jesus' greatest moment of need. He denied him three times, declared, I never even knew the guy. After declaring that he would never betake, betray Christ, he said, I never even knew the man. How do you, how do you get back from that? Is there, is there coming back when that one comes out of your mouth? Not unless we do it the right way. How could anyone ever trust my word again? Disqualified. And yet Jesus clearly states, and Peter, because he's not about to let Peter spend the rest of his life swimming in an ocean of shame. He goes after Peter's heart right away. He's got to get to the heart. Now, religion hates this because religion its goal is to control people and to control their behavior. Religion wants to keep control because religion is about behavior modification. And a lot of what I see happening in churches today is focused on behavior modification. And here's what I've noticed over the years, that when a religious person fails, when they screw up, man, it crushes them because they've lost everything. And how do you come back from that after you've lost everything? This is why we see so many people who grow up in the church who are exposed to religion leave and never come back. They never fall back into the fold and they're told through our actions, even through our words, that your actions and your failures, a lot of these things, unless you are completely sorry, that we will not allow this to continue. I've seen this happen over and over again to countless men and women who I've sat with over the years who will never step foot back in Christianity again. Because a lot of what they see is a focus on behavior modification and not a lot of heart transformation. When Jesus says, go tell the disciples and Peter, what he's doing is he's going after the heart of Peter so that his heart doesn't slip into deeper realms of shame. 
Because Jesus believes that when I walked out of the grave, it all is just beginning now. Things are about to shift and move, and we've got things to do. And what we see Jesus doing for Peter and for his disciples is the exact thing that we as Jesus followers get to do for one another. We get to be the greatest advocates for one another, lifting one another up, calling the best out in people, believing in people, believing that your best is yet to come ahead of you because of the resurrection. That we're not going to spend our time shaming or condemning or just simply working on behavior modification because we believe that Jesus transforms the human heart. Jesus walked out of the grave that day and went looking for his people. He went looking for his disciple. He wasn't interested in any of the speeches that they could give. It was like Jesus was more interested in the heart of people than he was in people's obedience. He just kept going after the human heart. And then in one of the most empowering statements that Jesus declares when he's standing with his disciples, at the end he says, don't be alarmed and go. That's empowering. Don't be alarmed and go. This is why I think the resurrection actually gives us immense freedom to love the world. Because you can see what the resurrection is doing in the world today. The world that we live in is suffering. And it seemed like Jesus was just another failed messianic leader. But Jesus walked out of the grave back into the physical world in his physical body. It seemed like Jesus was just one more person who was killed by the machine. And if you think about the machine that was operating back then, it crushed all of these leaders over and over and over again. And they would rise up and they would go back down. But this one stayed alive. And after Jesus rose from the dead and came walking back into the world and began to set people free... Lots and lots of people began giving their lives to Jesus Christ and yielding themselves to his leadership. And all of these movements that we've seen that have come after Jesus, it seems like in our world they rise up and then they get crushed by the machine once again. They rise up and they get crushed. Over and over and over again, we see this pattern repeating itself. And after the Jesus movement happened. Throughout Rome, people's lives were transformed. And many years later, thousands upon thousands of Jesus followers were being crucified. And it seems like the machine always wins because that's the world we live in, isn't it? That systems of power, people in power get to determine what's right and wrong. They get to determine what's good and what's evil. And they continue to try to keep the movement of resurrection down, but the resurrection, belief in the resurrection actually frees us from having to give in to cynicism or skepticism. The resurrection says we don't have to be a cynical people. The resurrection says we don't just have to wait for the afterlife. We get to get to work now, in the here and now, because this world matters. We are a resurrected kind of people who continue to declare that Jesus is alive and we refuse to believe that things will stay dead because Jesus is speaking life into the things that appear to be gone. Resurrection actually keeps us from sliding into cynicism. 
couple of months ago, we had this thing called a snowfall. I didn't realize it snowed in Seattle until I moved here. And then we got dumped on in a great fierce dumpage. And I remember going outside and looking at the snow, and there was this one strain of grass that had popped up through the snow. And it reminds me, ah, it seems like winter has the final word. But I continue to be reminded through the power of creation that actually things are coming back to life. It appears to be gray and overcast and rain a lot in Seattle. It appears to be snowy. It appears to be cold. It appears to be dark. It appears to be chaotic. But I see that one spring of hope that comes up out of the chaos. And I'm reminded once again that darkness does not have the final word. Jesus does. That's what, the that's what the resurrection declares. Jesus holds the final word, not death, not chaos, not darkness, not that which seems like the end because resurrection comes along and brings that back to life. Divorce does not have the final word. Decay does not have the final word. Financial ruin, that child who has walked away does not have the final word word. That lost dream, that lost hope does not hold the final word. Resurrection has something to say about those things right now. The machine itself that we live in that continues to crush people and oppress people and push people out into the margins does not hold the final word. We as a resurrected people realize that the machine is a farce. It's not real. The resurrection is more real than that. And now, as a result of the resurrection, guess what we get to do? We get to love our enemies. We get to forgive people. We get to speak out against injustice. And we get to love everyone. That's what we get to do. Sometimes when people ask me what I do for a living and I tell them I'm a minister, what does that mean? It means this, I get to love everyone. That's the joy of my heart. I get to love everyone everyone that comes into my pathway. I was thinking this week about the bodily resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus actually came back out, got back into his body, and walked out of the grave into the physical world. And I thought, that is God's ultimate grand statement over the entire universe, that everybody's body matters. Everybody matters. Your body matters. My body matters. That body that God gave you matters. Whatever form, shape, color, whatever it is, it matters because God came walking out of the grave that day. And because of the resurrection, we can face the worst of whatever life throws in our direction. There is no other religion in the world that states that we will be given a renewed body. What an incredible promise that God's going to give us a new, renewed body. The, the scriptures declare that God is making all things new. Sometimes we like, to, we like to reverse that and say that God is making new things, meaning that he's going to get rid of the old things. It's like, no, 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 it's not what it says. God says he's making all things new. So that which was isn't going to just be thrown away. It's going to be made new a more whole version of itself. That's what the resurrection declares over humanity. Now, can you imagine 
the kind of hope that this gives someone who is paralyzed. Can you imagine the hope that this gives to somebody who is suffering from manic depression or schizophrenia? If you are not able to dance or to kneel, the resurrection says that does not have the final word over your life. Because of the resurrection, we can face tomorrow, whatever it brings. God saves bodies, not just souls. And that means he cares about poverty, hunger, disease, and sickness. He cares deeply about what COVID-19 is doing to our world. He cares about the implications of what COVID-19 is doing to the formation of our children. And if we think about all that's happened in this last year of what COVID-19 has done to so many lives, tragic, and we think about the way that it's shaping and forming children, COVID-19 does not, does not have the final word over the development of our kids. Resurrection has something to say about all of it. Jesus came walking out of the grave that day, back into the, the physical world. That means that everything is being redeemed, even ordinary life. All the stuff, food, sitting by the fire, having a game night with friends, connecting over Zoom, all of it is being redeemed. My encouragement to you this morning is go. Live as a resurrected people, and not as a people who would be, be resurrected someday, but as a people who are being resurrected right now. Grace and peace be with you, my friends. And now, my friends, we get to leave this place and we get to follow Jesus today. That's what we get to do. Which means we get to love everybody. Everybody that we come into contact with. So as you're moving through this week, may you be the kinds of people that actually look for that one blade of grass that's poking up through the darkness, stating, Resurrection's always swirling around, and may you be the kind of people that get in the swirl, recognizing that things that look like they're on their last moment are just beginning. Go in his power, in his love, in his grace, and in his peace. Go, my friends, in the name of Jesus. Amen.